take your Bible and open up to uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we're at verse 30 is where I'm going to start in at here. John chapter 6, starting in verse 30. text says they said therefore to him what do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you what work do you perform our fathers ate man in the wilderness and as it is written he gave them bread out of heaven to eat jesus therefore said to them truly truly i say to you it is not moses who has given you bread out of heaven but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven for the bread of god is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is uh, not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the opportunity again to gather. We're thankful for an opportunity to open your word. And we do pray, Lord, that you would guide us in our study this morning, uh, that we would behold your truth uh, from this portion of Scripture, and that again we would come to uh, love the Savior more as we understand who he is and why you have sent him. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come here in our study this morning to John chapter 6, we come to some of the most magnificent and wonderful promises the Lord Jesus Christ has made, and, and I think we really need to devote our great, uh, greatest uh, attention to on a personal level. Uh, I have uh, entitled this morning's exposition, The Bread of Life. Uh, Christ is coming to the end of his Galilean ministry. Uh, he's uh, teaching the people, as it says in verse uh, 59 there at the synagogue at Capernaum, and he makes a repeated statement. He makes, in fact, several repeated statements. This one, I am the bread of life. He makes that claim in verse 32, 33, 35, 38, and 51. And he says, I am the bread of life. It is the first of the seven I am statements in John's gospel in which the Lord takes for himself the tetragrammaton. Maybe you've seen it written all caps, uh, 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 Y-H-W-H. It's the uh, verb to be in the Hebrew. It is the name of God. It is uh, God who describes himself as I am that I am. And Christ applies that to him. Uh, he uses different metaphors in these seven times. That he uses that I am statement, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, and those seven I am statements are on part of the Lord's part to make it clear who he is so that we would understand him better and then we would understand that he is one in essence uh, as, the, as the Father. And so the Lord uses these I am statements, taking on the name of God, applying that to who he is, so that, again, uh, we would know uh, him better. We would not understand his nature. We would understand his character. 
that we would understand his work in a, in a greater fashion. And in this portion of scripture that we're about to look into, the Lord is preaching this monumental sermon where he presents himself as the bread of life. Now, let me just say quickly, preaching for the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry was a, a, a great part of that ministry, a great part of his earthly ministry. He, everywhere he went, he faithfully preached the gospel. Everywhere he went, he taught on the issue of uh, the kingdom of God, and he taught people with tremendous uh, uh, kindness and, and divine compassion. But he also taught them with divine authority. Uh, there have been a lot of great preachers in the history of the church of Jesus Christ, but there's never been a more powerful preacher than the person of Jesus Christ himself. There's never been a more powerful preacher than Jesus. At the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount, it says in Matthew chapter 7, uh, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority, not as one of their scribes. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, it records that all were speaking well of him and wondering of the gracious words that were falling from his lips. Uh, Even his enemies were awed by the power of his words, uh, explaining why in John chapter 7, why the temple officers, the temple police, uh, failed to uh, arrest him as ordered. Uh, And when they came back and reported to the chief priests and the Pharisees, they said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Right? So preaching was an essential part of Christ's earthly ministry. And again, he speaks with divine compassion, but he speaks with absolute authority because he's God in the flesh. So he preaches this sermon known uh, again as, as the bread of life, referring to himself as the bread of life. And he preaches it right after he has healed uh, uh, the people, the multitude. He's healed the sick. He's taken, remember in the story, five uh, small uh, crackers, if you will, and two small fish, and he's fed the multitude somewhere between. It's popularly known as the feeding of the 5,000, but I told you perhaps the crowd would swelled anywhere between ten to 20,000 people. And, and this feeding of this uh, large group of people really is a remarkable life-sized uh, real illustration, if you will, uh, of the sermon that he's about to preach, again, presenting himself as the bread of life. And in this most monumental sermon, there again at the synagogue of Capernaum, he, he makes a repeated claim uh, that he comes down out of heaven. He has come down out of heaven. Again, you see it, verse 32, 33, 38, 41, 42, 50, 51, further on in verse 58. Look there at verse 32. At the beginning of the sermon, right, verse 32 says, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 41, the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven that one, so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. All of these claims that he makes repeatedly over and over that he came down out of heaven is a claim to his preexistence. It's a claim to his preexistence, right? It's a claim to his eternality, to his deity. Remember how John started the gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So again, Jesus is no created being. He is the eternal Son of God. He's the one who existed in eternity past. He's the one who existed everlastingly in the presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is God of very God. That's why John 1 verse 14 says, We beheld his glory and in essence, it was the same glory as the Father. They, they, they share that same essence. And so this is who he is, and this is why he has come uh, out of heaven. Again, he's declaring his preexistence. And, and he's come to these Jewish people, to the, to the Jews, and he is proclaiming to them the truth. And he proclaims to them at one point in this sermon that they're going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which is obviously not literal, but it's a metaphor. They're going to have to take him in completely if they want to have eternal life. As he's going to repeatedly make the claim that he and he alone 
is the only means by which anyone can obtain eternal life. Now, of course, the Jews are going to have a difficult time understanding, and the Jews most certainly are not going to believe what he says. But the very purpose for why he's come, the divine purpose for what he, why he has come, uh, he, he says again, is to bring life. Again, verse 32. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread. Verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, listen, to give life to the world. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The eternal plan of God the Father was to send the Son, who is the true bread of heaven, the one who gives life to the world, that whoever beholds him, Whoever looks upon him, whoever sees him and believes upon him may have eternal life. That's why he's come. That's the reason why he was sent. The pre-existent one, the pre-existent bread of heaven, again, provided by God the Father, who comes down from heaven to fulfill the Father's will to save those who would believe upon him as he's going to offer himself up. And he is drawn... Uh, drawn uh, the people who believe were drawn by the Father to the Son. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father sends the Son into the world. The Father draws individuals to his Son and then assembles them together. And ultimately, he's going to bring them together into eternal glory, uh, resurrected uh, physically at one point, uh, but into eternal glory. And then Christ again says, look, I will raise them up. Verse 44, I'll raise them up. We'll talk more about this next week, but it's a tremendous story when you understand the biblical uh, design of God the Father and the Son and the eternal uh, love uh, relationship that is going on in the background, if you will, that we are a beneficiary of. I'm telling you, the the doctrine of salvation is so much grander. I'm, I'm so excited for our personal salvation, right? But the picture is so much grander than just our personal uh, life. It, there is an eternal love uh, but that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, that the Holy Spirit plays a part of, and it's displayed in our salvation. So again, God loves the world, God loves the Son, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit per, per, uh, makes everybody look uh, to, to the Son. It's just a tremendous um, love story that we're really caught up into, right? So the Father is going to draw people to the Son, now, and the Son comes into the world because, again, he's going to provide eternal life, the only one that can do that. Now, that's just a few of the highlights as I was reading through it this last week. I thought it would be an encouragement to us just to get, get, uh, again get a little bit of taste of uh, uh, what's coming. But let's go back and just set the context very, quick, uh, very quickly. Remember, although Jesus has performed many miracles uh, in, in the presence of many here in chapter 6, I told you the issue in chapter 6 really isn't the miracles. It has to do, chapter 6 has to do with true and false followers of Christ and their response to him. The false followers of Christ will follow him for a moment, for a period of time, but then they'll turn away from him ultimately, where the true followers of Christ will not do that. They'll, they'll follow him forever. They'll fall down before him and they'll worship him. And I told you the distinction between the true followers and the false followers of Christ has to do with his words. His words. Now, his works are evident to everyone. I've told you this numerous times, and not even the most uh, strictest of um, the enemies of Christ during the time of his incarnation ever denied his power to uh, the miraculous power that he performed. What his uh, oppressors or his uh, people who stood in opposition to him did is they made the claim that his uh, work was done by the power of the devil, which, of course, is absurd. Nobody ever denied his miraculous power, right? His works were too evident. Everybody saw them. The issue with Jesus really has to do with his words. It has to do with what he says, right? It's his words that makes that separation. Again, the miraculous deeds that Christ did divines his, or reveals his divine power, but it's his words who define, uh, defines more clearly who he is, his words, because he's more than just a wonder worker, right? He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, uh, the uh, miracles that he performs uh, authenticates him and authenticates his message that he is, is indeed who he claims to be. Uh, he's just not some itinerant preacher, but he really is God 
come in the flesh, the one sent from God. And again, that is consistent. That truth is consistent for why John writes. Remember, I keep referring back to it, but it's the thesis of the book, and it's all through the book of John. John 20 and 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for why John writes. John writes evangelistically for the hope that people will listen to the truth. They'll see the miraculous power of Christ to know that he's just not an ordinary man, but they'll hear his word. And by hearing his word and seeing his power, they'll come to a true knowledge of who he is. And they'll come to a saving knowledge of who he is. That they'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by doing so, by believing, they'll have eternal life in his name. Now, the sad reality is we know that many will not. In fact, the sad reality is most won't. Most won't come. Some people will follow Christ for a certain amount of time, but in the end, they're going to ultimately reject him. And again, they're driven away from Christ because of the truth, because of his words, because of the hardness of the demands that he makes, the fact that he does indeed claim uh, to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that salvation is found in him and him alone, and you have to come to him by faith alone, right? Uh, Apart from any kind of works or effort on your own. And then you have to come and you have to count the cost carefully and you have to give of yourself completely to him. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. That means to die daily to yourself, to your wants, and come completely to the person of Christ. They don't like that. Most people don't like that. Most people, again, they'll follow him for a certain amount of time, but in the end they'll reject him because they're driven away by his truth, by the words he speaks. On the other hand, true followers of Christ, again, recognize him as God's son. They, they love him. They fall down before him and they worship him, not just only in words, which they do, but with their life. They follow him no matter what. They love his teachings, even the hard ones, because it is his teaching, the teaching of Christ, the word of Christ, that has set them free, and they know that, that has given them new life. Now, again, Christ performed many miracles, uh, uh, you know, along with the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and after that happened, uh, um, he sent his disciples. Remember the context of the story. He sent his disciples uh, away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They were caught in a storm. They were in absolute fear of their life. And he comes to them. He walks on the water and he rescues them. So verse 22, the scene shifts back to the east side of the lake uh, uh, where the feeding took place, where uh, Jesus had uh, spent the night, uh, uh, where the multitude of the people had spent the night. And they were looking for in the morning that Jesus would come and provide them another free meal. Verse 22. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from, the, from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread, and after the, saw, they saw the Lord give thanks. Verse 24. When the multitudes therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples... They themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus, right? So they're going back to the, uh, from the east side to the west side of the lake. The multitude is going to follow him, but they're following him for the wrong reasons. I think there's a certain reality. They like the excitement of the crowd. Everybody wants to be a part of something. Uh, they're fascinated to a certain extent by the prospect of the supernatural because that happens when uh, Jesus is working among the people. But again, they're following him for the wrong reasons. They're only following him for the earthly benefits that he provides for them. He has healed their sick. He has provided them food, and they want more. Right? The truth is, the multitude is not the least bit interested in worshiping him. In fact, they are indifferent to worship. And they're certainly not interested in giving their lives for him or, 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 or obeying him. Again, they just want more from him. They want him to provide for them earthly things more earthly things. They see Jesus as some kind of a banker or repository or or, or a genie in a bottle, if you will, to get everything they want. They are preoccupied with the here and now, the personal prosperity. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I told you he doesn't even waste time answering the question. Uh, Implied is, how did you get here? He doesn't even answer the question. He just goes on, verse 26. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, ultimately, who's Jesus? Again, he is God of very God, right? He is the one who knows all hearts. 
He's the one who reads minds. Uh, he, he's the one who reads the secret motives. Uh, and he alone could come and say with a peculiar power that it was not even their desire to see the supernatural or the miraculous performed that caused them to follow him. Uh, they followed him because he filled their bellies, right? And, and so uh, the, the supernatural, the spectacular in, inflames people's passions to a certain uh, level, uh, really the more laurel, carnal, carnal parts of a man's life. Uh, but the carnal motives of the miraculous never saves anybody. It's another reason why the false faith healers of our day are such a disgrace to the gospel and a disgrace to the truth. Not only can they not do what they claim that they can do because they don't have the power to do so, uh, the supposed miracles that they uh, uh, supposedly perform merely attract carnal lusts. Uh, people want to have their physical needs met. And, and we get that to a certain extent. We can understand that. But these false teachers have nothing to do with the truth. And there's nothing salvific in the so-called miracles uh, performed by these people. The Bible says that, in fact, there's nothing salvific about miracles uh, in the, in the uh, least fashion. The Bible says faith comes by a miraculous display of the supernatural. Did you guys say something when I asked that question? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If you just simply went back and looked at the vast number of miracles that Christ did, and I told you before that he's done so many of them, uh, that they're not even written down. John says if you wrote them all down, you couldn't even, all the books of the world couldn't even contain them all, right? How many people truly followed Christ at the end of his life? I'll give you the answer. In the upper room, there was 120. Not to say there weren't a few people scattered here and there throughout the region, but there weren't many, right? Of the vast numbers of people who followed him after the miracle of performing uh, of feeding the 5,000 or the 20,000 people with the loaves of fishes and, and uh, the loaves and the fishes, the answer again is not many. The spectacular draws, but the spectacular doesn't save, right? There's nothing salvific in miracles. And, and uh, again, faith comes by hearing. Uh, the supernatural does not provide that, right? And, and so Christ knows that. He knows all hearts. Kind of a warning, he knows our hearts. He knows your heart here, sitting here this morning. He knows all of our hearts in a perfect fashion. We can't deceive him. You might be able to deceive your friend or your wife or your husband, the person around you, but Christ knows our hearts. And, and the true character, our true character, is going to be exposed uh, on the day of judgment, if not found out before that, before we die. So Christ knows all these individuals. He knows their hearts. He knew that after the novelty of past, they would uh, novelty past, they would cease to be thrilled. They would cease to be astonished or attracted to him because, again, they just wanted something more from him. They wanted something of the Lord, from the Lord, and they are really not interested in him and his person. They just want what they can get from him. He fed them once, and they want to be fed again. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of God shall give to you. For uh, on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. So when he says, do not work for the food which perishes, he's taking, trying to take the focus off the physical and off the temporal and trying to put their focus on the eternal. He's trying to encourage them to be more concerned about their soul than they are concerned about their bellies and their bellies being full. And there's a certain irony here, I, th I think, uh, because he says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. And then he goes on in that very same verse. He says, the Son of Man will give you this food for eternal life. Right? So these carnally minded men, these unconverted men, are working for something that Christ will give to them freely. And he says, what you need to be concerned about is not just your physical life, but you need to be concerned about your eternal life. And eternal life is an absolute free gift, if you want it. So it's a remarkable uh, a statement that Christ is willing and ready to pardon and to provide grace to any sinner freely, if only they would come, if only they would repent and believe the gospel, if only they would come, repent, and believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28, he said therefore to him, or he said therefore to him, or they said therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And again, in their ignorance and their lack of understanding of how to obtain eternal life, they thought there was something that they must do. Right? Some kind of quote-unquote work. But again, I've told you, that's the default position of all false religious systems. 
all false religious systems of the world, doesn't matter what you call them, doesn't matter the particular tenets of the, uh, of the system, all false religious systems unite under the false idea that they can do something, right? They can perform some kind of work in order to grant themselves or to earn for themselves uh, admission in, into heaven or eternal life. But Christ tells them there's nothing they can do. Nothing they themselves can do. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So again, if they want eternal life, they just simply have to believe upon Christ. Who is Christ? The one whom the Father has sent, the Messiah. The one who's standing in their very physical presence. And of course, belief or faith and faith, that's not really a work of man either. It really is a gift of God. But it's the only quote-unquote work, if you will, uh, the only quote-unquote work of God that he accepts is just belief, faith. That's the only thing that pleases him. Romans 5, uh, verse 4, Paul says, to the one who does not work, but to the one who believes in him, in Christ, uh, or the one who believes in him, God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Right? Paul says, all you have to do is believe upon Christ, not work. Sit down, rest. Christ has done all the work for you. Christ has all, done all the work for us. Salvation is absolutely free gift by the grace and the mercy of God. So the first step, if you will, towards heaven, if anybody wants to go there this morning, uh, the first step uh, is just belief. Believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. Believe God whom uh, he has sent. And, and of course, belief in the Bible is much more than just an intellectual assent to the truth. True belief has to do with repentance from sin. True belief has to do with turning from sin and embracing Christ as both Lord and Savior, obeying him, following him completely, doing everything that he asks or commands of you to do. And someone has said, someone uh, once said this, you, uh, once you come to true saving faith, once you confess Jesus as Lord, you just gave up your sovereignty. You just gave up your rights, your will, and you just acknowledge his dominion. You embrace his sovereignty as Lord and Savior. And I thought, that's a tremendous statement because we don't think of it that way. Yeah, Jesus is my Lord. and I, No, no, he is the Lord. And when you repent and come to him as Lord, that's who he is. You just died. We've been talking about in the evenings in Romans chapter 6. The old you has been buried. We don't dig him up anymore. The old you has been buried. Once you come and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that means your sovereignty is over. That means your will is over. Well, you know, I don't know. That's kind of harsh. <laughs> well, that's why he said, take up your cross and follow me if you want eternal life. And the vast majority of people don't want that. We'll just cut to the chase. The vast majority of people want a Jesus who will serve their personal needs. A Jesus who will make them wealthy and happy and, and whole and healthy and, and provide them the kind of life that they want in the world. They're really not interested in subjecting themselves to someone else. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's why there's so few who follow him. Once you confess Jesus as Lord... You just gave up yourself. You just gave up your sovereignty. You just gave up your rights, your will, and you just acknowledge his sovereignty, his dominion, his rule over every aspect of your life. That's what it means to follow Christ. Now, that's the life of the true disciple. They understand that. Again, the false followers, the false disciples, they are preoccupied about themselves, what they want. True disciples, however, on the contrary, they are concerned about Christ and all about Christ whatever he wants. True disciples have their desires fulfilled in Christ. And again, true disciples will follow Christ because Christ is all a true disciple needs. Uh, a long time ago, when I first uh, worked at Cedarville University, uh, Paul Dixon was the president, and he used to sing a little chorus, and he'd just break out in this little chorus, and it just was very simple. Christ is all I need. That was it. And he just kept repeating that song, and everybody knew the chorus, and everybody would sing it. Christ is all I need. Life is that simple, my friends. We don't have to overcomplicate it. Christ is all we need, always. He's sufficient for every aspect of our life. The crowd asks the question, what must we do? The answer is believe. If anybody desires eternal life, believe. If anybody desires eternal life, Christ says, I'll give it to you, and it's free. You don't have to work for it. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you freely as a gift. Now verse 30, and verse 30 begins our text for this morning. Verse 30, they said therefore to him, 
What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That is utterly an amazing uh, statement to me. Incredible. Despite the numerous miracles that they'd already previously uh, witnessed, including the healing of themselves, many there in that crowd, and most certainly their family members, they fed the multitude with a few barley crackers and fish, and there was just a tremendous amount of food left over. And now they're brazenly demanding another miracle in response to his claim, verse 29, that he is the one who's been sent from God. Now, James Boyce, in his commentary at this point, uh, points out the fact that it was a common teaching of the rabbis of the day that when Messiah uh, came, uh, he would duplicate the miracles of, uh, uh, of the giving of manna to the people in like fashion of Moses. Now, that may be historically true. I have no doubt about that. But that's not what we're witnessing here. Uh, the crowd in front of us is not a group of theologians looking uh, to uh, the minutest detail of messianic fulfillment. The crowd is interested in manipulating Jesus. They want to get from him what they want to get from him. They're not interested in him, and they're certainly not interested in him as God's gift to mankind. They're only interested in him as far as the gifts that he gives to them. They're interested, again, in the physical, not in the spiritual. And it really is an incredible and utterly amazing request for them to ask for another sign to prove his credentials. And reality, what this is, again, it's not a group of theologians. It's actually uh, uh, nothing more than brazen unbelief. This is just rank unbelief, right? This is a graphic illustration of the proof, uh, the, the uh, truth of spiritual blindness of, of uh, the part of the unredeemed in their lifestyle. Calvin says this, this wicked question clearly shows the truth, what is said elsewhere, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for miraculous signs, right? That's, uh, that's the reality. This is a wicked group of people. Again, Jesus has just, uh, just healed their sick, their infirmed. Uh, he has just fed the multitude. And when did that happen? Was it like weeks ago, months ago, years ago? It was the day before. It was the evening. They've shown up for breakfast, right? They just got fed by him the day before. And again, he's provided ample proof of his deity. The question is nothing more than rank unbelief. And as I've told you many times, unbelief is not rational. Unbelief is irrational. Unbelief stands in opposition to the truth. Unbelief tries to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And unbelief is never satisfied, no matter how much evidence is given. Unbelief is never satisfied, no matter how much evidence is given. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, the plain truth is that it is want of heart, not want of evidence, that keeps many people back from Christ. Right? It is want of heart, not want of evidence, that keeps people from Christ. You've heard people in your own life say that. Well, if he could only prove himself to me, if I only could trust what the Bible says, because we know the Bible's full of all kinds of fairy tales and not truth, and I know that it says, well, have you ever read what it says? And when they get down to it, the answer is no, they haven't read it because they're not interested. Okay, well, just be honest, most people aren't interested. Again, they're only interested in Jesus that serves their own purposes, their own, own, own fleshly desires. If we could only see something, right, give us some more evidence. How about this? Uh, Jesus says in, uh, or Abraham actually says in Luke 16, verse 31, if they don't listen to the Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Right? If they don't listen to the truth, if they don't listen to the word of God, people aren't going to be persuaded if somebody even rises from the dead. You might remember at the crucifixion, the unbelieving uh, Jewish religious leaders, they come and they mock Christ when he's on the cross. Matthew fifteen thirty-two: let this Christ, the King of Israel, come now down from the cross that we may see and believe. Well, you know what? Jesus did one better. He didn't just come down from the cross. He actually came back up from the dead, right? And when he rose from the dead, a far greater miracle, really, than coming down off the cross that day, the Jewish religious leaders still refused to believe. And we know the story, rather than admitting the truth of the resurrection, which is an undeniable historical fact, they desperately try to cover it up, the reality of the resurrection, by uh, bribing the guards to say the disciples came and stole his body. Again, the plain truth is it is want of heart, not want of evidence that keeps people back from the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus Christ comes in the world out of a, into the world out of a, a love for the, that the Father has for the world, and he offers people, to, uh, offers people eternal life. And the truth is, most people don't want it. They don't want it because it costs them too much in time. They're not willing to sell all, sacrifice all. They're not willing to count. Uh, they've counted the cost, and it's too high to follow Christ in time. Now, Jesus has just exhorted the crowd to believe back in verse 29, and again, they demand another sign from him. 
Again, they want to re- repeat performance, if you will, the miraculous uh, feeding that they just experienced the day before. And rather than acknowledging who he is, rather than bowing down before him in worship, the false followers of Christ challenge him uh, to prove that he is the Messiah providing them, or by providing them an unending uh, supply of food. What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Again, it's, a, it's an amazing, shocking statement. The unbelieving crowd is making a false comparison between the Lord of glory and this person Moses. And they're making a false comparison between the Lord's miraculous feeding of the multitude compared to Moses uh, and the feeding of uh, Israel with manna. In essence, they're saying this. Well, I, I know I know you did it yesterday. You did a miracle yesterday. But that was yesterday. And it really is not as great as what happened in the days when our fathers were fed by, uh, man, by Moses in the wilderness. I mean, you just did it once. He did it for 40 years. So what proof do you have that you're greater than uh, a greater prophet than Moses? Now, again, Jesus doesn't want to pander this group. Uh, he will not allow them to manipulate him. He has no intention of gratifying their materialistic desires. Rather, Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them, and he rebukes them for their misunderstanding of manna in the wilderness, and so he's going to correct them. Verse 32. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and remember I told you any time that he uses that kind of phraseology, he's really trying to direct our attention to something, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, and here's the first point, of his rebuke. It's four points of correction. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but my father. So Moses didn't feed the people with manna. It was God who fed the people with manna. It was God who did that. And the Lord told Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Exodus 16, verse 4. All Moses did was simply relay the instructions about how to gather the manna. Uh, for the Israelites, Exodus 16, 15 and following. Right? So they don't even understand the, the, they don't even understand where the bread came from, the manna. Secondly, he corrects the crowd in their error, telling them the manna was not the true bread from heaven. It was not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Look what it says again. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. The word gives is in the present tense indicating that the true bread out of heaven is not the manna because manna is of the past. The true bread of heaven is what the Father is currently giving to the world. Furthermore, the word true means genuine or real. The manna of the past, though it was bread supplied by God, was nothing more than a foreshadow of the ultimate true bread which comes down out of heaven, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number three in his rebuke and correction, that the manna of... uh, of Israel's past gave physical life, which is true. But the bread of God, which is synonymous with the bread of heaven, the bread of God or the bread of heaven that comes down from heaven gives life, and it really is spiritual life. Verse 33, For the bread of God, which comes down out of heaven, gives life to the world. Gives. Again, it's a present active participle. Uh, to give to someone for their own benefit, to, to supply for their advantage, to grant, to furnish. The bread of God which comes down out of heaven gives life. And the word there is zoe, not bios. Bios, biology, right? That's physical life. This is zoe. This is spiritual life. The bread that comes out of heaven gives spiritual life, eternal life. And eternal life only comes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Point four in his rebuke and correction. The bread of God or the bread from God, the true bread meaning the manna was not the true bread that brings spiritual life. The bread of God, which comes down out of heaven, listen, gives life to the world. Life to the world. What did manna do? Fed the 12 tribes. Right? It fed the 12 tribes of Israel. It satisfied their hunger. It sustained their physical well-being. But the bread that the Father offers, that the Father gives, that comes down out of heaven, gives life, eternal life, to the world, the entire world. Not just 12 tribes out in the wilderness, but to the entire world, the whole world, regardless of race, nationality, ethnic background. I think we read that this morning, if I'm correct, out of the book of the Revelation. Someone has said the bread of God is for the whole world. 
to provide eternal life for every member of Adam's family who would eat of it, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, this bread is so much better than manna, right? The truth is that God is offering salvation through Jesus Christ to every member of Adam's race who would believe. Because Jesus Christ himself is God's gift to the entire world. John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 5, 11, this is, witnesses this, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. If you want eternal life, here in the room, on the internet, if you want eternal life, it's a free gift. Come get it. It's that easy. It's that easy. Believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you do for a sign that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Christ, Jesus Christ, rebukes this crowd for their misunderstanding of man and the wilderness, and he corrects them by saying that he is the true bread. He was the true bread. He was the one sent from God from heaven, therefore he's infinitely superior to the manna, infinitely superior to Moses. Again, the crowd's desire for more proof from him merely exposes their evil motives and their evil hearts. It exposes, again, this is not a group of theologians. It exposes a want of understanding, an ignorance of their understanding of the Old Testament scripture. And again, a lack of their understanding of the words of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not understand his words. I'll give you a hint next week. They don't want to. And that's the reality for most people. They just don't want to. They don't understand his words. Verse 34. They said, therefore, after he just says rebuked them, which they don't get, they said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Again, the crowd doesn't get it. They're still not understanding what the Lord is saying. They're still trapped in the material. They're still trapped in the physical world. Now, Lord really would be better understood as them saying, Sir. And I think that's clear. I think I can defend that from verse 36, because Christ himself says that the crowd does not truly believe in him. You have seen me, yet you do not believe. So when it says Lord, it's really Sir. right? They're not bowing before him and worshiping him as uh, the Lord God who he is. They're saying, Sir, evermore give us this bread. The New English translation says this, Sir, give us this bread all the time, of course. You know, the, the, the buffet is open, right? Again, the crowd is uh, focused on their physical needs. They are not acknowledging the Lord Jesus in the salvific sense, one who is co-equal with God, one who is their only hope of eternal salvation. They just want Jesus to provide them free food. They just want a free meal ticket. Their only desire for Jesus is for him to take care of their physical needs. They only have superficial interests in him. Sir, give us this bread all the time. Now, you know, I I don't have to say this, but I'll say it. Sadly, a lot of people like that today, right? We get it. A lot of people like that today. And there are many so-called, quote-unquote, churches that are filled with people whose only interest is for Jesus to provide for their physical needs. They're shallow, temporary, false followers of Jesus. They are looking for him to fulfill their physical desires. I said that last week. And, And there are many places... Uh, sadly, with the name church outside the, their uh, front door that will accommodate them. Many churches, so-called, that will accommodate false followers uh, of Christ. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Uh, again, the, that statement is not much different. If you think back to uh, John chapter 4, it's not much different than the encounter Jesus had with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. He was speaking to her. Uh, I mean, they came to get a drink. He starts talking to her about living water uh, that, could, that he could give her. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I'll be thirsty and not have to come here to draw anymore. Right? Again, she's not getting it. She's thinking on the physical level. She wants him to meet her. She wants her needs to be met. If he can do that, that's great. At this moment, she's not yet been converted. So she does not understand what he is saying to her. Right? She doesn't understand the spiritual meaning behind his words. Same with this crowd. But that's always the way it is for the unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. They cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So again, the crowd in reality doesn't understand him. They don't understand what he's talking about. 
And again, you see that just by the continuation of what he says next. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, the first of the I am metaphors that Jesus uses here in the book of John that again reveals who he is. It reveals his perfection, the perfection of his person, the perfection of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he uses that word, I am, intentionally and plainly as identifying himself with the God of the Bible, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons uh, sharing one essence, right? The covenant-keeping of God, uh, the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. I am, that would have got their attention. They would have immediately gone back to the book of Exodus. So he is making the claim of deity. He is making the claim that he alone is the source of eternal life, that he alone is the sustainer of eternal life. And again, for everyone who comes and believes upon him, he offers them that life freely. And he's going to accomplish that work uh, very soon as he's going to lay down his life as the only atoning sacrifice for sin, which lays the groundwork for the forgiveness of our sin. So he comes and he says to them, I am the bread of life, right? The very bread that he promised earlier, again, back up in verse 27, do not do the work for, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you, right? Not not physical bread, not manna, not the uh, fish and the bread that he just created the evening before. None of those things could ever permanently satisfy a person's physical hunger. Again, it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. He's trying to use a physical analogy to speak of spiritual truth. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And again, he's not speaking of the physical. Hungering and thirsting speaks to the spiritual. It speaks to the issue of the soul. Now, hungering and thirsting, you might remember, is a metaphor that Jesus has used before. He used it back in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Now, the sad reality is there's not many people this day in the day in which we live, there's not many people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because there are not many people who see their true need for righteousness. Because there are not many people who are mourning over their sin. Therefore, there are not going to be many people who are satisfied. Because it's only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that will be satisfied. Because until men and women see their utter bankruptcy before a holy God, they'll never turn to Christ for the solution the solution to the problems they face. And the most important problems that every man or woman faces are not temporal. They're eternal. They're standing before a holy God. Can they stand in his presence? And if you were to die and God was to ask, why should I let you into heaven? You better not say, well, because I've tried hard in my time on the earth because that's not getting you a pass. It's going to get you condemnation. We need a righteousness that we don't possess, and Christ is the only one that possesses that righteousness. One of the great obstacles for the Jews uh, to come to Christ, to receive the gospel, was their own personal self-righteousness. They thought very highly of themselves. They're very confident in themselves. Same is true. Nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Same is true of them today. The Jews believed they were actually more holy than they actually were, and that God was less holy than he actually is. Again, nothing has changed. It's the same of true, same thing is true of them today. The Jews believed wrongly that because they were God's chosen people, uh, that they were the keepers and the interpreter of the law, that they were safe. They were already in the kingdom. When the reality of the truth is they were all under condemnation. They were lost. That's why Christ is offering himself to them this day as their only hope. But again, that's the way it is with men, right? Most men are self-satisfied. Most men think very highly of themselves most men have no spiritual hunger most men pursue or prefer sin over righteousness because they're full of pride full of self and the one who's the most need of righteousness is the one who most often feels that he has no need whatsoever of righteousness because i'm good enough hopefully i've done more good things than bad things and i can kind of squeak my way in there again it's not going to happen i'm telling you the truth it's not going to happen I told you that a hundred times from this pulpit god doesn't keep those kind of categories Stop and think just in your daily life. Stop and think in your conversation. We are talking about this this morning in the elders meeting. Stop and think how often do you hear people complain about their health or complain about the lack of their health, or their good health, the lack of their finances. 
But when was the last time or how often have you heard a man ever complain about the fact that they feel they have a lack of righteousness in their own life? Go ahead. I'll give you a few minutes to think about that one. When's the last time you ever heard anybody complain, I'm not as holy as I desire to be? Right? How much time do men spend on recreation and amusement? How much time do they spend considering uh, the physical wants versus considering the condition of their soul? Most of the conversations come Friday, or what shall we do this weekend? Very few conversations, very few questions center around what's the condition of my soul before a holy God. People don't think like that. And without a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness, no man's ever going to enter into the kingdom of God. And it's the world who seeks happiness apart from Christ. And again, they're seeking a happiness they're never going to find apart from Christ. And until men seek righteousness that's found in Christ, and until men seek righteousness over happiness, all they're doing is condemning themselves both in time and for eternity. Time and eternity. Because life is folly or life is foolishness without God and without Christ. As Christ's followers, Christ's true followers are the only true people that are happy, or only people who are truly happy in this world. The one who knows God, the one who knows Christ. The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness that, again, Christ alone provides. Again, it's the only true follower of Christ that can actually sing that song, Christ is all I need, and actually mean it. I don't need anything else. Christ is enough. The Bible says, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. No one who seeks for God, right? Those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who really do seek genuinely for spiritual things are giving evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit has begun an act of work in your life, in that person's heart, in that person's life. And that's got to be tremendously encouraging because we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness apart from the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And and, uh, he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now note two things that he begins to say here. First off, in this verse, he begins to speak in the first person. right? And in this sermon, as we work our way through it, you're going to hear him directly use the word I and me no less than 35 times. He starts to speak in the first person. I am the bread of life who comes, or I am the bread of life, he who comes to me, shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall uh, never thirst. So again, I'm the bread of life. I'm the true bread that comes out of heaven, the bread of God. Again, coming down out of heaven, he is the eternal uh, God who gives life to the world. Someone has written, the bread of life means that spiritual bread which conveys life to the soul, that living bread which does not merely feed the body like common bread, but supplies eternal sustenance and nourishment to the eternal soul. J.C. Ryle makes a great comment on why Christ calls himself bread. He says this, The reasons why Christ calls himself bread appear to be such as these. He is intended to be to the soul what bread is to the body. It's food. Bread is necessary food. When men can't afford to eat nothing else, they eat bread. It is food that is all, uh, it is food that all need. The king and the pauper both eat bread. It is food that suits all, old and young, weak and strong, all like bread. It is the most nourishing kind of food. Nothing does so much good and is so indispensable to the bodily health as bread. It is food that we need daily and are never tired of. Morning and night we go on all our lives eating bread. And that's true. Uh, uh, probably true around your house unless you're watching carbs. Uh, but it's true, right? We, we, go, we go to foreign countries. Uh, we, we eat bread in the morning, eat bread at lunch, we eat bread in the evening, right? Because bread is cheap and everybody can, has access to it. It helps to fill you up, to, to nourish you. He goes on, uh, Ryle goes on and says, One of the great general lessons is doubtless indeed to be drawn from Christ's selection of bread as an emblem of himself. He is given to be the great supply of all the wants of men's souls. Whatever our spiritual necessity may be, however starving, famished, weak, and desperate our condition... There is enough in Christ to spare. He is bread. Again, Christ is all we need. Christ is all. Second thing, he not only starts to speak in the first uh, uh, person singular. uh, Note this, number two, look at the verbs. Look at the verbs in verse 35. Right? The verbs define man's responsibility in the process of salvation. And they're found in two verbs. The word comes and the word believes. 
coming to Christ and believing, those words are linked together, and they are the only appropriate response to the one who stands before them, the bread of life. Again, uh, J.C. Ryle, the words coming and believing in the sentence appear to mean very nearly one and the same thing. To come to Christ is to believe on him, and to believe on him is to come to him. Both expressions mean the act of the soul whereby under a sense of its sins and necessity, it applies to Christ, lays hold on Christ, trusts itself to Christ, casts itself on Christ. Coming, he says, is the soul's movement towards Christ. Believing is the soul's venture on Christ. If there's any difference, it is in that coming is the first act of the soul when it is taught by the Holy Spirit, and that believing is that continued active habit that never ends. No man comes who does not believe, and all who come go on believing. That's tremendous truth, right? No man comes who doesn't believe, and all who come go on believing. When you come, it's the person of the Holy Spirit has began to work upon you, and again, you see Christ is all you need, right? So to come to Christ, uh, again, means you forsake your old self. You, you forsake your old life of sin, your old life of rebellion, and you submit to Christ as the Lord because that's who he is. Now, now John doesn't use the word repentance in his gospel, but the concept is very clear and very clearly implied in the idea of coming to Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said this, you and your sins must separate. Okay? What's repentance? Turning from sin. You and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. <laughs> if you keep pursuing your sin, God's not going to be your God. He's not going to honor you. Right? You and your sins must separate and you or you and your God will never come together. It's repentance. Believe upon Christ. Believe in Christ's name. Trust yourself to Christ. Again, completely for who he is. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. Acknowledge the fact that salvation comes only through him, by faith in him, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from works. So repentance and faith are really are two sides of the same coin. Again, to repent is to turn from sin, and to believe means you're not just turning from sin, it means you're turning to the Savior. Two sides of the same coin, both in inseparable truth. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, Ryle says, what our Lord means is that faith in Christ shall supply a man's soul with the peace and a satisfaction that shall never be entirely taken from him, that shall endure forever. The man who eats and drinks material food shall, shall soon become hungry and thirsty as ever. But the man who comes to Christ by faith gets a hold of something that is an everlasting possession. He shall never die of spiritual famine or perish for want of soul nourishment. He may have his low feelings at a season's. He may even lose a sense of pardon and his enjoyment of religion. But once in Christ by faith, he shall never be cast away and starved in hell. He shall never again die in his sin. Amen? Isn't that good? There's no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Christ is all we need. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I say to you that you have seen me yet do not believe. Right? Here's the Lord's stinging rebuke, the Lord who knows all things, the Lord's stinging rebuke of their true spiritual condition. You have seen me and you do not believe. Now, most likely that statement is connected back to what he just said in verse 30. Right? What did, what did they say in verse 30? What do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? Right? And the Lord's response is, well, you have seen me and you still don't believe. Right? You don't believe. Their unbelief was willful. I mean, so hopelessly <clears throat> lost in their sin, they can't see who it is that stands in their presence. I mean, they'd seen the miraculous power that he possessed. They'd been uh, the recipients of his gracious, uh, compassionate kindness. They had heard his teaching, his powerful teaching. They were intrigued by his ability to meet their needs, but they completely failed to grasp the significance of who he is. They completely failed to grasp the significance of his miracles, and they failed and missed the point of his teachings. Again, their only interest in, interest in him was superficial. They were only interested in what he could do for them, the gifts that he could bring to them. They were not at all interested in him as God's gift uh, to mankind for the salvation of their soul. Again, he says, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. They were not the least bit interested when Jesus said, verse 35, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I mean, so deep is unbelief bound up in the rebellious heart of mankind that even in the presence of God come in the flesh, even seeing with their own eyes him perform his wondrous uh, miracles, they did not, that did not bring them to a point of salvation, did not uh, bring the, these men to believe upon Christ. And again, it just shows the utter meaningless of their words and their requests that they made back in verse 34 when they said, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They're just simply not interested in him. They're not interested in him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And again, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing's changed. There are many people today who attend quote-unquote churches but don't believe upon Christ for salvation. And I don't know, I'm not trying to be unkind, but I'm just trying to be helpful. Maybe it's even some of you in the room this morning. Maybe it's some of you who are watching me via the Internet. You attend here uh, every week. You uh, watch us online for whatever reason uh, you have. But in the end, the truth is you're simply not interested in Christ. You have seen me or you've seen him and you do not believe. And when you heard those words from Christ, I thought to myself, you know, how refreshing it is to hear the preaching of Jesus Christ. Because he's not like so many of our modern uh, uh, pansy, false uh, teachers and preachers of our day, right? Who fail, who don't have the guts to speak the truth and love, right? To the people in front of him because he just sees his congregation as a bunch of nice people. They show up every week, they put the money in the offering plate, and and they go unchanged and unmoved, uh, unsaved by the person of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, Jesus was not that uh, kind of a a preacher. And by example, we follow him. He was a preacher of the truth, right? He he did it in the right spirit. He confronts them uh, sharply. He rebukes them uh, and their unbelief. And he does so out of love for their eternal soul. He rebukes them for their malicious rejection of himself as God's only gift to mankind to provide eternal life. You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. It has nothing to do with election. It has nothing to do with predestination. It has nothing to do with anything except the sinner's unwillingness to repent and come to Christ because the, ra- the reality, the truth is, I think I said this, most people don't want him. His demands are too high. I'll take my chances in the end, which is a bad gamble for you, my friend, because it's going to turn out poor for you. Your only hope, I don't know, people here here this morning, your only hope or our only hope is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in the presence of God the Father and not face condemnation. Christ is all we need. Christ is the sufficient one. Where are you this morning with the Savior? Oh, I know, you're going a little bit long, preacher. I got stuff burning in the oven and I got a golf game this afternoon. That's great. What's the condition of your soul? Because again, there's no hope apart from Christ. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. He who believes anybody so wide, so free, so broad, so unlimited, so unconditional is Christ's offer to the sinner. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. I mean, get a clue. Loose paraphrase in the, in the white spaces. They died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I'll take some of that bread, wouldn't you? Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, Christ is offering himself to all men. The living bread that comes down out of heaven, the living eternal bread that comes and uh, offers himself to all who would believe, offers to them eternal life. Again, the world's only solution to the problem of sin. Your sin, my sin. The only problem, the only solution to the problem of sin in the world, the only problem, the only issue to the, or the only solution to the separation of condemnation that our sin brings, the wrath that our sin brings between us and God, the only one that can reconcile that relationship. And again, many people, most people don't care. Most people don't see their need of righteousness, therefore they don't see their need of Christ. Therefore the Bible says they're in the process of perishing. In the process of perishing. Which they will do once they take their last breath and enter into a literal place of conscious eternal torment before a holy God 
because they themselves have rejected their only hope. They themselves have rejected the bread of life whom the Father has sent into this world out of his mercy and love. And again, I don't know who's watching on the internet. I don't know who's in the room, right? Uh, If uh, you're hearing this for the first time, then God in his kindness has brought you to this point providentially to hear the offer of salvation full and free. He's done so out of his tremendous love for you. To hear the truth. What did I say at the beginning? It's the words of Christ that separates the true from the false. It's always the words of Christ. Everybody's in for the show, the spectacular, the works. It's the words. It's the words that separate people out. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, verse 36. I say to you, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. So I guess the question would be, well, was he a failure, right? Did did his mission fail, right? There's so many people who did not, so many people who do not, so many people who who will not believe. Is his mission a failure? And the answer, of course, is no. There's no failure with God in spite of the crowd's uh, lack of response to the truth, in spite of the fact that the crowd was not willing to believe him in him as their Messiah and the Lord, and in, the, in him as the Messiah and in as him being the Lord. I mean, and, and the confidence of Christ's mission is really phenomenal. It's firmly rooted in God, in God's word. It's firmly rooted in the omnipotent sovereignty of God. And that's exactly what you see when you read verse 37. Jesus says, verse 37, All the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing. But I raise it up on the last day, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Again, God's saving purposes are never thwarted by man's rebellion and man's unbelief, right? God is in the process still of calling to himself an elect bride for his son, and he will make sure they come. All the Father gives to me shall come, and I'll not cast anyone out, right? Now, we've run out of time. I don't know if you thought we were going to get through 51 verses. I knew we weren't, but I just wanted to read that because I like the whole thing as a whole. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful again for the a truth of your word. We're thankful for um, the promises. We're thankful for the tremendous hope we have in you, our God, and Christ, our Savior, who has come and offered himself to the world for those who would repent and believe upon him. Full, free pardon from sin, eternal life. In eternity with you, yes, but a transformation of life and time because of our union with Christ and that belief. We praise you. We adore you. We sang at the beginning, uh, all hail the power of your name, and we say that at the end. We love you and adore you and just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.